Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. You are listening to Be The Change, a podcast of conversations with true visionaries who are creating new paradigms for a healthier planet and society. I am your host, Christine Demick, and my work is in finding real solutions to the biggest problems we face today, climate crisis, capitalism, social injustices, and our failing health. There are amazing humans out there that have answers, and it is my mission to have their voices heard. Together, we can raise consciousness and create a just and equal society. Together, we can be the change. Christina Zanato was born in Italy and grew up in the middle of the rainforest of the African Congo until the age of 15. She is fluent in five languages, is a diving operation manager, a full cave and technical diving instructor, and she communicates with sharks. It was a mesmerizing and breathtaking video of Christina removing the fishing hooks from her beloved shark's mouths that I first came to know her, and the more I learned, the more I was in awe of her and her work. To speak with Christina was a dream come true for me. In this episode, she shares how her gift as a shark whisperer came to be, how she uses her abilities to educate and create a human connection with the oceans, and why it is so incredibly important to preserve them. She also vividly accounts surviving Hurricane Dorian and why mapping the underground caves of the Grand Bahamas is so important for its future resiliency. So without further delay, here's my interview with the amazing human, Christina Zanato. I hope you enjoy. Welcome, Christina. Hi, Christine. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much for being here. I am just thrilled to have you. And I want to jump right in because there's so much to cover with you. You I, I just such a vast amount of work, such an amazing, amazing human. But for listeners who are not aware of your incredible work with sharks, can you please give us an understanding of why you removed the hooks from their mouths and what called you to do this? Well, I've been working with sharks for 25 years. It was a childhood dream of having sharks for friends. And it was an adult um, chance that showed up on my doorstep. What kind of went looking for it a little bit. And in the midst of working with sharks, and I, I realized that like any other creature that you uh, become affectionate with, they were hurting. And so the hook became the same as a thorn in a paw of my dog. I wanted to remove the hooks to alleviate some of their pain and suffering, some of the infections, to see them eating better. That is all where I came from. I, I spent so much time with these animals, and all I wanted to do is alleviate a little bit what is uh, something that is not natural. A hook is an artificial object brought in by humans, and so as it comes in with human intervention, I thought it was not bad to go and remove it with a human intervention. Now, do they let you from the very beginning? I mean, now we watch videos and I, I see that you can pet the sharks lovingly like I pet my chihuahua. It's such a beautiful thing to see. You know I love sharks. You know I don't have fear of them. But can you explain to the audience, because I think even, even some people who have a love of the ocean, I hear them and I just don't understand. You're like, oh, no, sharks, sharks. How... Um, you intuitively just go to them, or did you have to work this in? Do you have to give them food? How does it work? 
all of the above, meaning um, you have to, first of all, find where they are. I do give them food. I do believe like any other animal, we reinforce positive behavior of animals of any kind and of humans with a reward. And that reward could be uh, from a positive reinforcement to a pay raise to a human, to a treat for our dog. So I do use the food. Um, the food also is something that allows me to get closer to them, to drop a little bit that kind of uh, fear that they have of us. And then with time, it becomes then knowing each other. So they'll come up even if I don't have food right away and they'll come and swim around and figure it out who it is and what you do and all of that. So it is a mix of spending a lot of time together and obviously a positive reinforcement through food of their behavior. How do they recognize you? You said they know who you are. Is it because you're in the same place? Is it a Pavlov's dog thing? Like you're in the same place, they know they're going to get food or is it they actually know you? Well, you will have to ask them, but it's, it's a very <laughs> simple concept. It's really funny. People ask me, well, how can they recognize you? It's you. You're so full of gear. And it's like, well, the same way my dog can hear my steps up the stairs compared to a stranger's steps. Do they need to see me? Or is it just okay for them to feel me? Mm. So, and remember, the sharks have eight senses. So it maybe is not just a visual. It's a, it's a mental. They can feel electromagnetic fields. They can feel vibrations. They can Maybe they can see how I, I recognize them, how they swim through the water. Why can they not recognize me, how I move through the water? Um, but they do recognize me. I've been told that from people that uh, come and try to do the experience with me, do the experience with me, and they can be standing there with the food and I can be several feet away and the major sharks, uh, the girls and all of that, before they go and check the other person, uh, they'll first come up to me. Mm. And I'm standing there without food, but they'll literally swim up to me, swim around me, come into my touch and all of that. And then eventually I'll bring them over and, and they interact also with the other person. So there is a level of recognition. How incredible is that? It's so beautiful to see, Christina, and I thank you for doing this work. And I know education's a big, uh, big part of it. It's not just diving and feeding the sharks, but you educate children, you educate adults. Can you tell us a little bit why it's so important to our own survival that we have sharks and why we shouldn't be afraid of them? Um, there's a lot of movement out there uh, that keeps talking about saving the oceans. We need to save the oceans, and I'm in total agreement with that. But at the end of the day, if we really want to be realistic, is we need to save the ocean to save ourselves. Uh, this planet has gone through five ma mass extinctions and, and yet has come through and regrown and rebirth and regrew and everything else. So we need to save the oceans to save ourselves. They are source of the oxygen of this planet. They are the source of food for a huge quantity of people on, on this planet that don't have the choices that, for example, more civilized um, countries have, where maybe there's more food choices or alternative food choices. Um, but the oceans in itself is this vast web. It is, and I think it's so vast and so complex that we still don't have a full grasp of it. No matter, 
the scientists, what they say and what they discover. Listen, in the last few years, they just discovered five, six new species of sharks. I think 23 in the last five years. You're kidding me. No. And and that's the thing. We, we There is a, so much intrinsically related with the, with the ocean. And, and I think it will be kind of like irresponsible to eliminate something and then go, gasp, we really needed that. <laughs> I wish we would have realized that sooner. And as history repeats itself, we've done that in the past. We've done certain things and then we backtrack when we go, you know what, that was actually something that was needed. And we're still fighting against it. I'll give a perfect example, the wolves. Yeah. Um, being obviously on the nature side, I keep hearing about how the wolves maintain the balance of the deers or certain other animals, or wild, you know, wild boars and stuff like that. How the wild boars uproot everything, and without the wolves, there's too many wild boars. So the humans can go out there and hunt them. And I'm like, nature had it kind of like down to a T. And then you talk about reinstituting wolves, and it proves that it actually works. Yeah. As humans, we have a defect. We study things, and I think we discussed this before. We have two reasons for studying them. We either need them, or we really absolutely think they're a pest. <laughs> so we start studying them. Is <laughs> when we really need them, and we're really a pest. And so sometimes you have this pocket of science. It's like, oh, I'm really studying this. But they don't realize that this is connected to this, this is connected to this, and it's connected to this. And luckily, with sharks, we have at least that concept right they fill in in so many layers of the of the web of the ocean they're not just top apex predator they're in the middle food range or at the bottom of the food chain they are prey they're predators and prey and they're top predators and so by realizing that we can actually kind of like do something a little bit sooner to be honest with you the full consequences of a shark's disappearance from an ecosystem has not been explained yet. It hasn't been proven yet. And I hope we will never get there because when we get there, it's going to be too late. Right. It's my understanding that I think we're we're pretty much done if the sharks are done. That I can't say. I, yeah. I don't have enough know-how nor knowledge, understanding. Again, I look at this giant web, and um, but I do believe it will have extreme unbalances in the oceans. Would the ocean at a certain point maybe recover? How and where and when it could be a possibility? Our nature is resourceful. Is that, again, something we want to really test uh, and have so many things collapse in the, in the process? Absolutely not. No, that's an emphatic no. We don't want to do that. In fact, I... Whenever we go on trips or whenever, and I, you know, I swam with sharks a couple of times. Um, I look forward to it. In fact, if I don't get to go snorkel and swim with the sharks, I get very upset. And, you know, as a woman, I was in Turks and Caicos and it was beautiful waters, you know, I mean, it's beautiful, like the Grand Bahamas, uh, turquoise, and she hadn't gone out into the water once. And I couldn't believe that. And I asked her why. And she said, because there's sharks. And I said, well, first of all, there aren't sharks here that are going to even bother with you. So you wouldn't have to worry about that. But wow, you know, wow, that fear. Do you think this comes from Hollywood, from movies? I feel like kids, it's instilled in them in a young age. Fortunately, I, I've taken that out of my son. But how do we educate? I know you, you go to schools, right? Yeah, I, I speak. I go to schools. I do live talks. Um, I do talks to aquariums. I've done talk to dive clubs. I've done talks to 
book clubs. So whoever asked me to talk about these, these subjects I do, I do quite a lot of like Skype classrooms mm-hmm. with uh, different organizations, Shark for Kids or Exploring by the Seat of Your Pens. And now you can reach like 10, 9 classrooms in one a one hour session. That is very important. On the Hollywood, yes and no. Everybody keeps blaming Jaws, and in a certain way, yes, it really uh, changed how people view the sharks. But let's go back to Peter Benchley's uh, book, Jaws, and to you know Steven Spielberg's movie. If you, if you look at the book, it says a novel. And if you look at the, the movie, it was a Hollywood movie. And I think what this book and this movie just fueled was something that is inside us and is already been there. It was just emphasized. They never came out and said, hey, by the way, this is the best documentary on great whites ever produced. The guy said, now this is a fiction movie. Peter Blanche wrote novels. He wrote different other novels. So they never come out and said, this is a scientific, uh, you know, extract on great white sharks. <laughs> People were fueled by that, but I think there's something that is inside us. I actually did a post right today about that, and it was not really well understood. But I think as a species, we're very arrogant, right? We have conquered every single landscape that we could conquer on this planet. We are amazing. Some of these human beings that as Westerners we look at, we wouldn't even be able to imagine how they do it, but they live in the desert. They live in the Namibian desert, right? Mm -hmm. They live in a Kalahari desert um, or they live in the ice. They use ice to keep themselves warm. We have modified the environment to our extreme advantage. Mm -hmm. But we can't do that with the oceans. Yeah, we can go down there with the machine and the one atmosphere suit and the submarine and uh, list whatever you want. If you were to be dropped in the middle of the ocean, there's nothing in us and in the ocean that will guarantee our survival. We will go hypothermic between minutes and few hours, depending on the water temperature. We are not equipped to just be in the water for a lengthy period of time. We cannot even say, oh, I'm going to take a breath and huddle here on the bottom of the coral head or at the bottom of the rock and spend the night till rescue comes. No, we're absolutely alone and dispersed into this vastity. And we can't, we can't conquer it unless we have all these machines and all this technology. I'm the first one, right? We're breather, dry suit, mass, fins, light. I mean, to go where I go, I need all this technology with me. But you can still survive as a person in the middle of a snowstorm. You can still survive in a forest. You can still survive in a desert. And that's the difference. There's nothing in that environment to our advantage. And I think that makes us feel very vulnerable. And it's not a feeling that we're used to. We're used to it if it's brought on by another human, right? In Africa, uh, people would not cross from one village to the other hands. Your head would get chopped off or something because everyone was at war. So we're in New York City. You don't go walk in certain alleys or dark alleys because other humans might bring the, uh, this onto you. Right. But nature, mm. nature, we feel like we have we're superior. There are people that even based on their beliefs things that we have command over the animals that we should decide the fate of all the animals and all of that. I'm not going down that lane. And then comes the sharks. And you could say, well, there's also whales, the dolphins and all of that is that yes, but the shark is the 
perceived animal, you know, with the razor sharp teeth and, you know, the self swimming. And it does indeed prey on animals more than a whale that, you know, eats krill. And I think it really kind of like is the, the catalyst of this vulnerability that we feel. And when we feel vulnerable, a lot of people, a lot of animals too, right, become angry. It's like, oh, defensive. Ah, I'm going to defend myself. Try to go next to a wounded animal. <laughs> right. Careful, it's wounded. It's going to hurt you. It's like, well, I'm trying to help. It's like, yeah, but it's scared. That's my theory. I'm not a psychologist. I'm just a person that works with people and I just listen to people and I just watch people. Um, a fisherman, divers, a spear fisherman. And if you ask them, I might say, no, 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 no. But that's my feeling. My feeling is that we basically project in a shark something that we will never be able to be. And that makes us a little bit kind of like angry. So the hands, I do believe, is one of those animals that when we fish, you know, it's okay to hang and display in this kind of like expression of my power over these animals as the blood trickles down from these, you know, teeth and everything is like, if we did that with any other animal, we will be absolutely accused of animal cruelty. Right. That display of power and winning over a shark, those a shark fishing tournament, we know everybody around this creature that all it did for the entire sport fought for its own life for your entertainment it is something that we would never do without an animal so, so there is a disconnect i think it comes down to all of it to consciousness and losing that need to have to conquer or that fear and having respect again like i said i mean there was nothing i enjoyed more than swimming next to the shark and, and you know that that vastness right where we're floating out in the sea and there's nothing like it how much what is it only five percent of our ocean waters are actually uh, explored uh i think even less than that i can remember the percentage but it's a very minute percentage of our oceans have been explored we actually have launched i think more spaceships into the outer atmospheres and into space then we actually have launched into going visiting like the depths of our trenches i mean we're doing a little bit better now there's a couple of companies but yes it's um every day i follow i follow the nautilus live and is uh, every day it's, oh look at this we never seen something like this right. <laughs> oh look at that we never seen something like that this is absolutely fantastic and unique and again makes you wonder you know how many things have we not seen yet Oh, absolutely. And I think part of that, though, also it gives me comfort that it's unexplored because then it's un, um, unexploited. Thank you. That's the word I was looking <laughs> at. I want to move on to the cave mapping. But before we do that, we're taping this just a few months after uh, Dorian hit the Grand Bahama. And, and this is, for those everyone listening, this is Christina's home. This is where she was. She went through it. And I think it would be wonderful if you could give us uh kind of a report on what's going on now, how the sharks are doing, and anything that you want to share. Uh, so the island was um, hit in different ways, depending on the location. I was, uh, this time around, for Dorian, I was in the lucky corner. Last time around for Matthew, I was the unlucky corner. So some of it is just how the hurricane hits the island. About 70% went under the ocean in some areas up to 30 feet below the ocean water. While I was uh, working 
on relief, but then also on checking on the caves, which we'll get in a little bit, water tables and everything. We actually found schools of dead fish dried out about what is eight miles from shore. So from the ocean came in from eight miles away and carried enough animals. And then when the ocean went through the limestone and some basically went back, it left behind schools of dead fish. So that gives you an idea how far the water reached. The little corner I'm in is okay. Uh, we have power, otherwise we wouldn't be talking right now. <laughs> and we have water coming out of the tap that is a salty. This is consequences of the ocean basically coming over the island, filtering through the limestone and depositing itself through the salt water, or the fresh water layer, and so mixing itself up. It's going to take a few more months to clear out. The sharks were fine. The sharks were fine. I was able to go into the ocean three weeks after the hurricane. The visibility was very hazy, maybe 20, 30 feet the most, which is not very usual for us. We have 80 to 100, and all the sharks were there. Caribbean reef sharks is a scavenger, so obviously bringing them food uh, does not create dependence. If there's food, they'll take it. If there's no food, they'll go and do their thing. But when I went and checked on them, um, all 23 that I know of, plus new ones and a couple of males. This morning I was diving some sites looking for corals to do coral trees. We decided to do like a coral tree farm, try to help some of the corals. I saw a couple of younger males that i never seen before. So the population is doing good. Right. I'm very happy and they seem happy to see the divers. I've been able to go and personally visit them like you know, with food and contact about three times since a hurricane. So it's actually uh, not that much, but they're still all there. And when we were swimming today, they were just all in coming around and checking us out. Yeah, I, I also don't mean to make uh, any light on the human circumstance there. It's intense, but I do know that the sharks give you so much joy. And I'm, I'm glad that you have that comfort and that they're there and, and doing well. I, I think that uh, normalcy is one of the cures. And uh, um, I think that the people, yes, the, the human tragedy is immense and immeasurable in a certain way. Um, but a normalcy is what brings people maybe back into more of a routine. So it's not that you're making light. Uh, people cope about situation in different ways. Uh, for me, is immediate action, quite a lot of action. But also minus, for example, to move forward. So for me, it was important to go back and see, take care of the people. I've been doing still relief work. I don't really advertise it anymore. I've been taking care of uh, people that I want to take care of. But then I also need to go and take care of the ones that are important to me, although they're not in human form or human shape. So I needed to go and see how the sharks were, and I need to make sure that the coral are okay. And and I think if each one of us kind of like focus on what is their niche, uh, then we can actually have quite a few more things ready for recovery. Uh, we do need the tourism. So I know it sounds terrible, but, you know, the hotels needed to be cleaned out and the uh, restaurants needed to be open and the harbor need to be open so the food could come in so we can have people that can come in and visit the island which is, you know, half limping in certain areas, but in certain areas, ready to go. And it might sound terrible, but even the people that lost everything, they're like the first one eager to say, no, no, I want to take this tourist tour out because that tour will allow me to make some income so then I can go home and rebuild my completely demolished home. It doesn't make anyone insensitive. I think it's, it is part of the 
strength that humans have, right? Yes, agree. Thank you for sharing that. That was very well said. Um, you know, I follow you on Instagram. I get all the updates there and you're busy. And I love seeing that you went right back into cave mapping. And yes, um, so this involves what for everyone listening, this involves and Christina, of course, is going to go into in depth, but involves going under the actual island into unexplored caves, mapping it. But it's extremely important for future hurricanes, right? And, and resiliency. Can you tell us why? Well, I think it's important for for the present. Hurricanes are not hurricanes. One of the most important things, and 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 it's it's amazing how very little, unfortunately, no matter how many presentations and how many talks and how many is explained, even the Bahamians do understand. Our fresh water is in the underground. It comes from the rain. It's filtered through the healthy limestone, and then it deposits itself on top of the salt water, which is obviously at the same level of the ocean. Uh, there's a freshwater lens, is uh, a little bit maybe hard as a type of water, you know, like the, the faucets are always covered in white calcite and things like that, but it's extremely good and extremely drinkable. We have no mountains, no rivers, no lakes, no, no snow, obviously, and yet we have a phenomenal supply of freshwater. Wow. Your water system there is from the freshwater? Yes. Wow. I take the regulator out systematically during a cave dive, especially if I'm coming back from a dive where I was in a saltwater and I come back into through the fresh water and I'm in the middle of the cavern, I'll take my regulator out and take a couple of sips of water after a two, three-hour cave dive. Wow. I did not know that. <laughs> a lot so of we have fresh water. Yep. Then the, furthermore, the caves are not just in one location. They are either underground, under the terrain of the island, but many are under in the ocean, like they're called ocean blue holes. They're called like that because they have this stark, dark blue against this beautiful turquoise. And these holes, again, are connected with land caves. I know that for a fact. We know many connect. We've done, you know, put the dye on everything, but I actually literally swam from a land-based cave through an ocean, open ocean hole. There are like about 4,000 feet in a swim, and there are about 1,000 feet in, in distance from land to the ocean, proving, you know, if I can swim through everything that you deposit, where the water system of this cave is, will travel through the limestone into the water table and through the cave all the way out in the ocean. And when it gets into the ocean, will affect whatever is the cave is in contact with. And especially in the Bahamas, quite a lot of mangroves, where in some places I've been told mangroves are uh, terrible here. They are a, an incredible uh, source of stability. They are nursery grounds for corals, invertebrates, vertebrates, sharks, you name it. Um, they have this kind of like cage system, right? So you animals reproduce in here. Uh, nutrients are transported, and yet big predators can't come in because all the roots prevent like big animals to come in. So all the baby barracudas, baby sharks, all sorts of different fish basically live here till they grow up and then they're ready to go out in the ocean. At the edge of this, there's also food source. As the population expands, it will spill out, creating more food source. And uh, they also carry quite a lot of nutrients for corals. And so they're a, a very, very incredible source ground. But then furthermore, mangroves stabilize land. 
they are capable of putting down roots into salt water and slowly as they grow, there's different kind of mangroves, you know, red mangroves, black mangroves, but again, not biology lesson here. And as the, the first ones on the front line are capable of basically grasping the land and make it a harder and then preventing uh, what will be destruction from uh, big waves or like tidal waves during hurricane or during major storms. Mm. I see. People build walls. I, I laugh when somebody brings their home so close to the ocean and says, I'm going to build a wall. And it's like, here we go. How arrogant of you. Why don't you look at what nature does? Right. And if you actually let the sand dune be, right, you build your house far away from the beach, 100 yards, not going to die, and you leave the sand dune and leave every single plant that stabilizes the sand dune. If you leave the mangroves and you just carve a little path to get to the water, You'll have a fantastic clean water and a much more stable, you know, landline. So back to Dorian, uh, Dorian did some numbers. I mean, it took down some strips of beach. And I do believe some of the damages were actually mitigated by the mangroves. If the mangroves had been completely removed and in Sanera, they were completely removed. The ocean came in and just just demolished everything and in some areas it demolishes some of the mangroves but it didn't demolish everything there's a huge stark difference now i don't have all the data but that's where the caves are so intrinsically connected with everything right so do you feel that after this disaster that there is some education coming through that people are seeing this and that maybe i should leave this and not put a, a dock here for my jet skis uh yeah Kind of. I don't know. I honestly yeah. don't know. I don't have enough information. I'm going to hold my judgment on what's going to happen with a little bit longer term because sometimes the humans, we, and I've seen this before, I just gave a presentation about this. We consider something and we say, well, this is really good for humans or this is really good for the, for example, the economical growth of humans. And yes, I totally agree with you. We need the jobs, we need economical growth, we need the health and all of that. But then if you destroy what is, for example, now everybody is making a better salary, but everybody's getting sick. Right. Because that air is completely contaminated. I don't think that really that benefited the economical health of those humans either, because once they start then going into the healthcare. Yeah. It's not sustainable. I spoke with a woman today. I know so many women with infertility issues, autoimmune disorders, all of this. And it's everyone. You can't move to the top of a mountain. You know, Everest has plastic on there as well. I think there has to be, people have to understand symbiosis that we rely upon one another and is so important, just so important. I, I hope that we are coming to that time. So here's something that is happening on the island and is, for me, heartbreaking. It's just, it's culture here to just toss the garbage out of the window as you're driving. So I finished drinking, throw it out of the window. And I know a lot of people will get upset and I'm saying this on more national, but it's true. Bahamians have this culture. It's like, oh, I'm going to toss it on the side of the road because I provide jobs for someone. But lots of this stuff ends up somewhere where it doesn't get picked up. And, and even more people, they're like, well, you know, my washing machine broke down. So now I'm just going to go somewhere in the bush and just toss it in the bush, not realizing, you know, fridges, heaters, coolers, all that kind of gases and things. And this hurricane has created so much waste because people lost everything. So they had to gut their homes, throw everything away. And 
People complain how much garbage basically went flying and floating and basically was intrinsically interconnected into, into the forest. And yet now they're throwing more garbage everywhere, just on the side of the roads. Every day somebody dumps something. They don't even realize that we actually have a sanitation services that makes it free for household people that lost everything to take all their items down to the, unfortunately, to the dump, but like for free. Yeah, you don't you don't get charged. So it's really interesting, right? Everybody's like, oh, there's so much pollution and everything in the water, blah blah blah. But let me toss my fridge here anyway. <laughs> right, I don't understand it either. If you figure it out, send me an email. I, right. I <laughs> but it will eventually come back to you yeah. through your food source, through your water source. We know for a fact of animals are ingesting plastic particles we know for a fact that uh, people that eat food that of, of animal origin will end up ingesting that but i'm not be surprised if that is also in all the vegetables sometimes i go through the bush and i i see some garbage and i go to pick it up and it has the roots have like grown through the plastic bottle so as, as i pick up the plastic bottle the plastic bottle disintegrates in a million pieces yeah. So I do believe we're almost living on a layer of our own garbage already. I hear you. I, I think, you know, studies are out there that we eat a, a credit card worth of plastic every two weeks now. I don't know. It's so overwhelming. It is overwhelming. So how do we how do we solve this? How do I go through or how do other people can go through? Is that for me, I do believe, and we talked mm -hmm. about this, is if every one of us does a little bit, the ocean is made of drops, so maybe each one of us can make a little bit of impact. And maybe through my impact and a little bit of kind of like, you know, preaching on the side, uh, someone will, will pick it up. And then maybe that someone eventually will sort it out. And it might sound like a slow way. It is a slow way. I do believe we need to go back to the concept of production. But production can also be changed by people's demand. That's just very basic of economics, right? Right. If people start demanding things differently because they've been educated about the situation, then production also will have to change. Yes, and perhaps maybe you buy less and maybe you realize you don't need as much and that you don't need that new sweater or you don't need another thing from Old Navy. You don't have to get that. You don't need another tank top, another pair of flip-flops, right? That we actually have more time to be and to enjoy yeah. the nature and not pollute it. In, in total agreement, I think I think there is discrepancy between especially what we need and then what we wish. Yeah. There is this rush towards get everything done and everything in a timely manner. And, and at the end of the day, the, the driving force is economics. Yeah. But the, these economics then cause these people to like, you know, gain weight and have a heart problem and this and that because they eat wrong because they don't have time to take a lunch because God forbid it looks, it's frowned upon to actually stop for an hour. You know, I need to show that I'm working 14 hours in a row without taking a lunch break. I'm eating on my desk. <laughs> yeah. And I don't have the solution. I know I tried to find the solution for myself. I agree. Christina, tell me, tell me what your why is. Like, why in the morning when you, you know, every day you're being the change, you're, you're this drive, what, what is your why? Because I love life. And I think this planet is the most beautiful thing that I ever seen. I mind you, I haven't seen anything else, but I'm talking about the details of nature 
the insects and the flowers and the oceans and the corals. I absolutely, I am enamored with life and the colors of uh, the sunset and the sunrise. I keep. I have thousands of pictures that I take. Oh, a picture of the sunrise. So you took one yesterday. I say, yeah, but this one is a little bit different. I want more people to just love what is around them. It's a gift. That's a why. And and to do it, to preserve it, obviously we need to, you know, to teach, pick up a piece of plastic, clean up a little piece of beach. Don't use this. Don't throw that away. Use a recyclable, you know, a reusable cup. And yeah. It takes a little bit of effort, but I think if we all put in a little bit extra effort, we can actually have much better results. We can do it. We absolutely can do it. I have hope just as you do. I I just adore you and I, I thank you so much. You're such a guardian of this world. And um, will you tell us about how people can help you with, I know you have a foundation, People of the Water. Yes, People of the Water uh, is a pownonprofit.org. It's a 501c3 nonprofit. And it was created to allow me to do more exploration, but also to have more education and more outreach and to be more available uh, for others to use, you know, what I do and my services so that maybe we can change something. That is what the nonprofit does is uh, through the uh, financial support, uh, either through the shop or direct donations, the money then it gets transformed into direct education training people that don't have the means, for example, to be trained for diving. I do quite a lot of that as well. Great. So people can donate. So donate to people of the water. And if they come to Grand Bahamas and can they dive with you, do you do that? Is that part of it? Yes. Yes. There's quite a lot of information about that on www.christinazanato.com. Christina without an H. And that's basically where you see everything that you could. Uh, there's quite a lot about my work, but also um, how you can dive with me. Beautiful. And how you can dive with me and the sharks. Well, that is on, it's on my list. I first need to know how to dive. I can't snorkel with the sharks with you, right? No, no. no. <laughs> but even if you took like the one day class, you could actually go swim down there with them. Oh, beautiful. Okay. Yeah. So that, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. <laughs> I, it I am doing it. Sounds good. Well, Christina, thank you so much. I mean, seriously, thank you. My sincerest gratitude. I know you're busy. I know you have many other things you'd like to be doing right now. And I thank you for giving us your time and and for sharing this extremely important information with all of us. Thank you, Christina. Really, I appreciate it. If you would like to learn more about Christina Zanato and her work, she is on Instagram at Christina Zanato and at People of the Water. And please visit her website at christinazanato.com and donate to her foundation, People of the Water, at pownonprofit.org. That's pownonprofit.org. I hope you enjoyed this conversation and are inspired. We grow with supporters and listeners like you. So please share this podcast with your community and follow us on Instagram at bethechange.nyc. And to learn more about our guests and what you can do to be the change, go to our website at www.bethechange.nyc. That's bethechange.nyc. Thank you and be well.